Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Fuel Radio. My guest today is Dr. Glenn Livingston. I'm really excited about uh, uh, having him on today. I kind of have a bit of a backstory that I won't share, but I've, I have shared it with a few people about how it, you, you serendipitously, serendipitously came into my email box as a guest. But um, oh. <laughs> so um, I'll just read your introduction here real quick. Dr. Glenn Livingston is a PhD. He's a veteran psychologist and was a longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. Disillusioned by the traditional, disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and uh, self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. More important, however, was his own personal journey out of, ob out of obesity to a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. So thank you so much for joining me yeah. today, Glenn. Yeah. So basically I used to be a fat guy and now I'm not. <laughs> that's the quick story but i would yeah. like to hear the whole story so maybe i'll tell you, you the could, whole story yeah if, if you yeah. if you would mind just sharing your journey with us i think that'd be okay. really really interesting okay. and helpful yeah okay so i suppose the most uh, the most relevant thing you should know about my childhood is that i grew up in a family of 17 therapists <laughs> and, and so when something broke in the house everybody knew how to ask it how it feels but nobody knew how to fix it and um, it's, that's relevant later because I took a very psychological approach when I probably shouldn't have. Um, I, had a, I had a binge eating problem myself. When I was about 17, I discovered that because I'm you know, six foot four and modestly muscular, that if I worked out for a few hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. Um, you know, whole pizzas or two. Um, Boxes of muffins, boxes of munchkins, um, coffee, you know, lattes, chocolate bars, whatever wasn't nailed down. I was, you know, if you stop at a 7-Eleven and you couldn't find pizza or Pop-Tarts, it's because I was there before you. And, and <laughs> it wasn't really a problem back then. It was fun. I felt like I discovered a trick. It was um, today what would be called exercise bulimia, but you know, I was 17 and I was tall and thin and um, I was sleeping a lot and pooping a lot, but that wasn't really a big deal. When I got out of college and I got married, I was 22 when I got married, I went to graduate school a two hour commute away. It's two hours in both directions. And I was seeing clients there and I was taking classes and I was married and I was helping out on the business. And I barely had two minutes a day to work out, much less two hours. But I found that the food had a life of its own and I, I couldn't really stop. Um, and the worst part of it in the beginning wasn't really the weight because I wasn't really getting that fat initially. What was the worst part was that I couldn't concentrate when I was with my patients. And because being a psychologist has always been so important to me, uh, and because it's not really an intellectual endeavor, people think that, you know, they're going to present, a, you're going to get presented with this jigsaw puzzle and you're going to say, well, the problem is that you're, you know, you peeped at your sister when you were little and your mother told you this. And so therefore you feel guilty and you shouldn't feel that way. And let's just drop. It's not like that. Um, 
if you want to really help someone, you have to lend them your soul so that they love and trust you enough to be willing to take chances and think new thoughts and leave their comfort zone. And if you're going to lend people your soul, you have to be present. And I, I just wasn't. I mean, I, I work with a lot of suicidal people. I never lost anybody, but I could have done better. I worked with a lot of couples right after an affair, very high risk, volatile situations. And I guess I was good enough. Um, like I didn't really have many people get divorced or anything, but, but um, it bothered me. I just didn't feel like I was, I was in my body, in my soul, and I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. Hmm. Um, over the years, I started to get a little heavier, and I wasn't super happy in the marriage. And I, um, I figured that, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And since I was a psychologist, I figured this must be a psychological problem. And if I could fill the hole in my heart, that I won't have to fill the hole in my stomach. So that's, I went looking for how do I fill the hole in my heart? And I had a very soulful and spiritual journey doing that, but it didn't help me stop binge eating. Um, I, I eventually realized that I was coming at it from the wrong direction. And I flipped my paradigm. There were three things that got me to flip my paradigm. Um, and the paradigm that I ended up at was that you can't really love yourself thin because the part of the brain that responds to food addiction, it's the lizard brain, the seat of the feast and famine response, the seat of the fight or flight response. And the lizard brain doesn't know love. Love is in the, the you know, limbic system and in the, in the higher brain. The, the reptilian brain says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it or do I kill it? That's how the reptilian brain approaches life. It's like a bad college drinking game or something like that, right? That's really, that's really interesting. I just want to stop you there for a sec because I kind of feel like, yeah, you might think that love and, and loving yourself is kind of the answer to everything, but you're saying it's not. You're saying you, you discovered something else. It was, it's more- uh, Loving it's, yourself is the answer to life in so many ways. I, yeah, I don't want, yeah. I'm very compassionate and I believe that people need to do that. And I don't regret the journey that I took. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I saw psychiatrists and psychologists and I went to Overdue's Anonymous and did yeah. spiritual reading. I, I, I mean, I did everything. You tried to and take a spiritual approach and then you discovered that there's something else on, on top of that. Yeah. Because, okay, so say I don't have children because my ex-wife traveled for business mm -hmm. and I was, um, had a lot of time in my hands and I, I started a second career. So I did a lot of consulting for big food and big pharma. I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war and I kind of wish that I didn't, but I was. And I saw that these big food companies were spending millions, if not billions of dollars engineering these hyper palatable food-like substances, like concentrations of salt and sugar and fat and oil and starch and excitotoxins <laughs> that are all designed to hit the bliss point in our brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. Right, and that has nothing to do with love. That's a, that's a physiological thing, Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. That, that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, we might be trying to fill a void or something like that, but, uh, or, you know, we might be medicating ourselves. but bring, at bring the me same back time, the, those things are engineered to, to hook bring, us. And Bring me back to the idea of self-medication, because that's a really important idea I want to, okay. because I, I, I think that that's a mythology also in many ways in our culture. Okay, okay. Um, 
So yes, that's an external force. The advertising industry is very powerful. Mm -hmm. um, people think that advertising doesn't affect them, but it actually affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you. And so they have you right where they want you. And so for example, um, I knew a major food bar manufacturer that took the vitamins out of the bar and paid their advertising agency to help them with the packaging so that it would look nutritious instead. So they had a diversity of shiny colors and, um, you know, and, and in nature, if you see a diversity of shiny colors, you're eating the rainbow, you're getting a diversity of antioxidants and vitamins and minerals. Uh, so think of bright green lettuce and red tomatoes and blueberries and, you know, carrots and all the different colors. Mm -hmm. It's an evolutionary signal that nutrients are available. But here, the advertising company is faking that. And that goes on all across the industry. Okay. So I, I saw that. And I, I, then I did this study. I decided I was going to try to, because I was getting paid a lot of money to do studies um, for other people. So I said, well, why not do one for myself? Hmm. And I organized this survey that I let run for about five years on the internet when clicks were cheap. And intercepted people who were feeling stressed. And I asked them what foods they couldn't stop eating when they felt stressed. And I asked them what specifically they were stressed about. And I discovered that people who were stressed at home tended to struggle with starchy, chewy things like bread or bagels or pasta. Hmm. People that were stressed at work, they tended to struggle with uh, crunchy, salty things like chips or pretzels or uh, well, chips and pretzels mostly. And people that struggle with chocolate like me, my, I was always a chocolate binger to start with. I, I progressed to pizza and muffins and everything, but like, <laughs> you know what it is? My, my sister could take two little squares of chocolate out of her purse, fold up the rest for later and say, you know, I'm going to eat the rest later. And I just could never do that. But I always had this quest that I wanted to be able to do that. And it never worked. Um, but people who struggle with chocolate, they tend to be lonely or brokenhearted or depressed. Mm. So here's a real turning point for me. I, I called my mom and I said, you know, mom, I found this pattern in this study and I definitely see it in myself. Can you give me any insight into how that developed in my youth? Because you're not only my mom, you're a therapist and you're also a chocoholic yourself. I was um, going to say your mom's a therapist too, right? So oh yeah, <laughs> calling your mom for advice is, is a whole very, new thing. <laughs> very different. Very different. Yeah. Yeah. So what did she, what did she say? Um, she said, lie down on the couch and tell me about your mother. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she got a, actually got a really horrible look on her face. Yeah. And she said, honey, I'm so sorry. And I said, mom, it's okay. It's 40 years ago. It doesn't matter. I'm just trying to figure this out. What can you tell me? She said, well, when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in Vietnam. He was a captain in the army. And we thought they were going to send him to Vietnam. And I was pretty terrified because we're trying to have your sister. And I didn't have any other way to support myself. And I thought I'm going to be this army widow with two small kids. And then my, my dad, your grandfather, he just got out of prison. And I had looked up to him my whole life. I adored him. But I didn't know he was doing these things. And he was guilty. And my whole world came apart. Mm. So half the time when you came running over to me for love or hugs or even some healthy food or just to play, I didn't have the wherewithal to do it. I was sitting and staring at the wall. And so I kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in a refrigerator on the floor. And I'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the refrigerator and you'd open up 
and you take out the bottle and you'd suck in the cap and you go into a short chocolate sugar coma. Wow. Um, and I thought, wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that couldn't be more clear. Yeah. And if this were a movie, then at that moment in time, we would have a big hug and a big cry and I would never have trouble with chocolate again. Yeah. And you know, this was over Skype, but we did have a metaphorical, you know, hug <laughs> and, and moment of forgiveness. And it, it, just, just a quick question about that. Like, is that, what do you, what would you call that in the psychological world? Like, is that imprinting or conditioning or what, what is there sort of a label that you would give to that? You'd call it a catharsis and a forgiveness event. Okay. But what about what her giving you the chocolate as a child and that sort of thing? What would you? Oh, well, she was creating a fixation. Okay. She was, cre- she was creating a fixation. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you would think that I would never have trouble with chocolate again after that. After after the after the cathartic event, yeah, 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 and it was cathartic. I forgave myself at that point. I forgave my mother. I learned all kinds of things about her I never would have learned if I didn't have the conversation. Mm-hmm. But my binge eating got worse, especially with chocolate. And the reason it got worse was there was this voice in my head, and it went something like this: "You know what, Glenn? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough." And until you can find the love of your life and get out of this marriage, you're going to have to keep on binging on chocolate. Let's go get some right now. Yippee. <laughs> yeah. And um, then I started to think, and I said, now, wait a minute. This is just a biological urge to mm-hmm. overeat. It's, it's obviously generated inside me by some organ. I know now it's a lizard brain. And there are other organs in my body that I've learned to control that generate very powerful urges. Um, if I had to pee right now very badly, my bladder would be telling me, you know, Glenn, you, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go. Mm-hmm. I would be telling my bladder, I understand, but I have to wait until after the interview's over because I'm in control. I'm not gonna ignore you. I know there's an authentic need there, sure. but I'm in control. Um, when I see a beautiful woman on the street, I don't run up and kiss her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a time and a place and I'm, actually still a little shy, so I don't really approach people in the street. <laughs> but, but, but you know what I mean? Like there's, so my, yeah. my, my reproductive organs are producing a very powerful urge that I take responsibility and control over. So why can't this be any different? Why can't I be like the alpha wolf of my body and understand that my lizard brain is challenging me for control? And when an alpha wolf is challenged for control in the pack, it doesn't go, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. Let me love and nurture you so you feel better. It says, you know, snarls and it growls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you. And and so I realized I was going to have to be an alpha wolf, that I was looking at this the whole wrong way. Now, this part's a little, little embarrassing for a sophisticated psychologist who's done all the things that I've done. But what I did at that point so I decided I was going to make very clear lines between healthy and unhealthy eating behavior. So I started with chocolate and I said, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. I'll only ever have it on a Saturday and Sunday. That way, if I heard a voice in my head that said, oh boy, Glenn, you worked out hard today. You're not going to gain any weight. You could have some chocolate. Just start again tomorrow. Yippee, let's go get some. I knew that that was not me that was my inner pig. I called it my pig, my reptilian brain. I, I called it my inner pig. Right. And then I'd say chocolate on a weekday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. 
And as ridiculous as that sounds, as primitive and crude as it sounds, yeah, it would give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse. And I um, could make the right decision if I wanted to. I didn't always make the right decision, but I stopped feeling powerless and confused. I stopped searching for this hole in my heart. Mm. And I said, I can make any rule I want to. No one's telling me what to eat or what not to eat. I'm obviously in control. And let me just follow, find some rules that I will follow. And what if I make following the rules more important than losing weight to start with? What if just the most important thing is that I follow these rules so that I stop acting on impulse, I stopped acting on emotion, and I just eat the way that I said that I was going to eat. And so by lowering the bar like that, making rules that I was willing to follow, um, having this very primitive guttural way to interrupt the feast and famine response, that part yeah. of you that says, just hand over the chocolate or some, nobody gets hurt. <laughs> hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. Putting that together, I slowly but surely started to get control over myself. And um, I had ballooned mm -hmm. up to almost 280 pounds and my triglycerides were you know, over a thousand. It was never a straight line. I was up and down and up and down, but that, that was my top weight. Yeah. And I started to get control. And mm -hmm. I kept the journal for eight years me versus my inner pig, all the different things it said and why it was wrong. <laughs> and in 2015, I was um, part of a minor, minor publishing company. And the CEO said that he wanted us to publish our own book. And, um, and I wrote it over the summer. Uh, I was getting divorced then, so I needed something to do. And I wrote it over the summer and I um, sent it to him. And he calls me back a week later. He says, Glenn, don't answer pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And he proceeded since then to lose a hundred pounds. And, um, <laughs> you know, we, we're both in marketing. So we kind of sort of knew what we were doing, but we had no idea it was going to take off like this. And yeah. Um, yeah. Do, do you think it works because the reptilian brain responds to that, those types of things, like the kind of the, the shocking language and having rules, like maybe the reptilian brain responds better to that than, compassion or you know whatever I, I think it's a it's a primitive emergency response binging is a primitive emergency response it's a, it's a mm. biological error mm. where your survival mechanism thinks that it needs bags and boxes and containers to survive yeah. but it, it needs them urgently people mm -hmm. feel like nothing else matters all their previously plans and so i think that it works because this feels like another urgent another urgency very primitive urgency that says, oh, well, maybe we have to respond to this instead now. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's why it works. I think it yeah. pulls from one emergency to the next, and then it wakes you up, and you remember who you are and what you want to do. We subsequently added a whole bunch of other techniques to help you move to your upper brand, but um, that's okay. why I think it works. Yeah, cool. I know, like, I've done some recovery work, and I, I realized in my own journey along the way that not every impulse needed to be responded to. You know, it's that it's that it's that whole theory of this too shall pass. I mean, it really, those, those feelings and, and uh, urges, they really do, they really do pass. Um, but it, it's great to have, and, and I think we encourage people that, that are in recovery to do that, like to, to wait and to realize that it's those, those urges and those sorts of things are going to go away or to even say, okay, not this minute, but I'll just go another minute without it, or I'll go another yeah. 30 minutes without it, or I'll yeah. go another, I can go this day without it. it. What you were saying also reminded me of, uh, you know, how some 
diets have a cheat day. So you, you go seven days and you go, okay, I'm not going to have ice cream today. I'm gonna have ice cream on Sunday. And I've, I've done those kinds of kinds of diets before and it works. It really, it really is a helpful. If, if you make your decisions beforehand, it works. If you define yes, what the cheat yes. day is going to look like, if it's an all out cheat, kind of like the movie, the purge where all laws are suspended, mm. I find that that typically doesn't work. But if people say I can have, um, you know, a half a pizza and a scoop of ice cream or something, then mm -hmm. that, that tends to work. So have a plan. Yeah. So Sunday is your day. You're not going to go, Oh, I'm, I can have a cheat day. So I'm going to have a cheat day on Wednesday and Wednesday ends up being <laughs> Wednesday, I, Thursday, Friday kind of thing. I, I find that my, my latest theory, my latest hypothesis is that okay. food addiction is only partially to the substance. I think that food addiction is more of an addiction to emotional impulsive eating than to the specific things that people eat. Mm -hmm. And so if you say, like if you write down a rule and then you have a craving and you recognize that it's a pig and you can say to yourself, well, I can have that tomorrow if I want to, as long as I write down the parameters of it and I change the rule accordingly, then you've foregone the emotional or impulsive indulgence and you're no longer addicted. I, I find that to often be the case. There are some people who are addicted to sugar, flour, alcohol, or all three. There are some sure. people that are, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'll just go ahead and admit it. I mean, I've, I've binged on all kinds of things in my past. <laughs> salt and, you know, salt and chips, if those are around, I forget about it, you know. You're, and, not, you're uh, not the only one, Rodney. Yeah. <laughs> and there's been times where um, I've been alone. I, I've, I've told people uh, that, and I've, I, I have, I have a plan now, but I've told people, um, you know, I don't do alone very well. And so, you know, my, my rule is I don't drink while I'm, you know, if my wife's away, I don't drink because oh. it just, just lowers my inhibitions, but I don't normally, I'm not normally a heavy drinker or anything, but um, in, in the past that has been uh that has been a struggle, you know? So um, I forget where I Most men that. tell me that if they have more than a couple of drinks that their food rules. Uh, can we talk about self-medication? Self yes, let's do that. Yeah, we wanted to go back to that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> have you ever been to the dentist and the dentist says, I'm sorry, but we're out of Novocaine. <laughs> Is it okay if I inject you with donuts instead? <laughs> no. The dentist doesn't say that, right? Right, right. The dentist doesn't say that because there's something else going on with the donut than just numbing out or self-medicating. It's not just a medication. Mm. It's, there's a high that's associated with it. Mm. People are looking to get high with food. The reason that's important is that most people don't like to think about themselves as a drug addict. Right. And so when you say, I'm just numbing out, I'm just comforting myself, I'm just medicating myself, you're actually setting yourself up for the pig to say, you deserve some medication. You really had a hard day. You're in pain. This is emotionally difficult. It would be difficult for anybody. You deserve it. Come on, you don't want to be, you don't want to be a harsh guy, do you? Um, but if you say, I want to get high with food, they go, I don't, want to, I don't want to be that person anymore. So that's important. Sure. The other thing is that most people have the idea that emotions cause a binge. And so they spend 30 years like I do trying to solve the emotions. Hmm. But what if 
binges could also cause emotions. What if it worked the other way around? Yeah. Um, there are physiological measures associated with emotions. When you're anxious, your blood pressure is a little bit higher. Your perspiration goes up a little bit. Your respiration goes up. Your heart rate goes up. We can, your galvanic skin response is different. We can measure those changes, even if you don't have a self-report about your anxiety level. Um, flip over to the animal studies where they're measuring things like blood pressure and respiration and heart rate and things like that. And then give that animal some sugar water or you know, some hyperpalatable treat every time that their blood pressure is raised. And what you wind up with is an animal who's got perpetually raised blood pressure. So the food itself, the sugar reward itself, reinforced the elevated physical symptoms. Now, we're only, it's a little bit of a leap because we don't have the self-reports from the animals, but it's not too far of a leap to say that if you're anxious and you say, I really need food to sleep, I really need um, you know, some pig slop to sleep, some donuts or pizza or something to sleep, and then you get that reward that you've now conditioned your body to produce that anxiety again and to produce it more reliably and regularly. And so it might be by the principles of operant conditioning that the, the presentation of the food reward every time you get anxious is teaching you to be more anxious over time. There's a slight diminution of the anxiety when you eat itself because when the body is busy digesting food or over digesting food, then the nervous system doesn't have a same amount of energy to conduct the emotions. So you're not as aware of what's going on, but you're still reinforcing in that loop. Um, and the last thing is if, if you think of the emotions like a fire, you could have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace. And that's not a liability, that's an asset if the fireplace is well-contained. It becomes the center of hearth and home. People gather around it and they cry and they hug and they laugh and they tell stories. We create memories. When the fireplace is faulty, then even one ash can get, down, get out and burn down the house. Now, what if I told you that it's easier to build a successful fireplace and patch up your fireplace than it is to put out the fire? It could take a lifetime for me to reverse the problem that my mother created. I don't blame her for it. She was going through a really hard time herself, but that, that loneliness or sense of a hole in my heart, that can take a lifetime to reverse. I mean, I'm, I'm still single. I don't have the love of my life next to me. Um, I'm much, much better. But if I were to wait until I solve that problem before I stop binging, I would never stop binging. Okay. But when I recognize that the pig is trying to poke holes in my fireplace, and I built a more sturdy fireplace so that that voice of irrational justification can't get through, mm -hmm. then, okay, so I've got the fire. Then when the fire is safely contained, it's easier to look at it, easier to work on with a therapist. Mm -hmm. So you actually make more progress in therapy. If you stop putting the cart before the, heart, before the horse, you take the practical measures that you need to take in order to stop yourself from binging, then you can work on the emotions after that. Hmm. So a lot of things are the opposite of the way that people think that they yeah. are. <laughs> yeah. It, it does remind me a lot of addiction work though. Like, you know, like enact some of the behaviors first and then the feelings and, 
you know, like you say, put up the walls, build a container and some of the, you can, then you can work on the feelings and, and I think the, I think the phrase is, I think the phrase is you act your way into right thinking. You don't think your way into right acting. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it, I wonder if you could say a little bit more because you've been in the marketing side of things and, you know, as you were speaking, just that, that, that last little piece, it reminded me of, um, you know, how, uh, it, it seems like media has this figured out and advertising and, and, uh, and the shows that we watch, or we go, just think about going to a movie theater. What do you do before you go in? You load up on, on pop, you know, oily, greasy popcorn and maybe, um, uh, Reese's pieces or whatever and pop you know and then and then you go in and it kind of comforts you during the movie or whatever but it seems like um it, it I wonder it I think there actually is kind of a bit it, it's not a a uh, really uh, I, I don't think people are sharing all of this information together but maybe you could just comment on that like um it, it just seems like we're being manipulated <laughs> well we, we 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 are yeah we are and like i said advertising affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you there, there's a good book called sugar salt fat that mm. talks about what's happening in the food industry and where it oh, comes yeah. from, what's, what's happening with that um the other thing that the advertising industry is doing is they're you know they're being five to seven thousand messages messages at us every year about food Mm -hmm. over the airwaves and the internet and maybe a half dozen of them are about fruits and vegetables mm -hmm. and and they are also adapting to this constant overstimulation of our visual and auditory senses and they make us people are accustomed to living in screens where there are car chases and naked women and um, and scene changes every you know, five seconds where it used to be every 15 or something like that. I'm, those aren't the right numbers, but. Right. Get Things the are flashing before us really fast. Yeah. Yeah. And so that goes along with the overstimulation of our uh, gustatory senses of our, of our taste buds and our um, taste pleasure centers. And the impact of that is that when you withdraw from, you know, eating bags and boxes and containers and making some, fat cat in a white suit with a mustache, laugh all the way to the bank every time you do. When you start to withdraw from that, you think there's something wrong. Life feels incredibly boring. You're not used to the taste that nature has to offer. You're not used to the quietude and, you know, solemnity of, you know, just enjoying the breeze on your face and you don't really know how to be. Right. And people, people say life is too boring. I can't, um, I can't do this. And that's, it's part of the whole cycle. It's part of the whole, consumption cycle. And mm -hmm. um, I tell people that you have to learn to sit with the boredom for a while because on the other side of boredom, your life energy will start to shift towards your life purpose. You'll find something to do with that energy that makes a lot more sense. And you will also adjust. Your, um, your senses have done something called down regulation. So if you have a chocolate bar every day, by the end of a month, an apple is not going to taste that sweet to you anymore because your senses have down-regulated. It's like when I lived underneath the subway in graduate school, the first week I had no idea how I was ever going to sleep. After, after a month, I didn't even hear a subway. Um, when you move out of the subway environment and you live in the country again, your, your, your senses up-regulate. When you get rid of the overstimulation of the chocolate bar and you go back to having 
you know, apples and oranges and lettuce. And you will very slowly find that your taste buds start to regenerate and re-respond. Um, I think there's research that says they double in six, eight, six to eight weeks, six to eight weeks. So it's not as long as you think it's going to be. And then before you know it, you can taste the subtle difference between a Fuji apple or a Gala apple or a delicious apple. And those start, things start to be pleasurable to you and you start to feel like life is exciting and normal again. And you wonder how you ever lived in that overstimulating environment. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think I have a really unique background to see this because I'm both a psychologist and a consultant and, and a food addict myself. Or right. I was a food addict myself. So, yeah. That's uh, really interesting stuff. Uh, just a, a story from personal experience earlier this year, my cholesterol was high. I was kind of doing the typical keto diet or whatever. And I'd been thinking about trying out veganism for a while. So I, I went raw vegan for 30 days, but you know, <laughs> can you see my tattoo? I can't read it. Necessarily. No, it says raw, raw vegan. There you go. So you too. Hey, yeah. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent anymore, but pretty close. Yeah. I don't know what you found, but I found that after those 30 days, I mean, I really started to appreciate the raw food and it, it, it tasted great. And I just felt the life in it and all of that kind of stuff. And when I started to add, I'm still vegan. I'm, I'm on day like 119 or something like that. But when I started to add cooked food, even that didn't taste as alive or as good as, yeah. as the yeah. raw food, you know? So yeah, I can really attest to the fact that our, our taste buds change and you just got to give it time and you, you really do learn to, and, and it, you know, there are times where um, like I've done some major, I, I've, I ran a marathon this summer and I've had some food bars and, and anything processed really, I can just, it just tastes, dead to me. So I just say all of that to just confirm what you're saying from personal experience is yeah. that uh, yeah. my, I know that my taste buds really, really change and what I appreciate has I, changed. I don't usually reveal that because most people run away screaming, thinking that they're going to have to eat the way that I eat. And right. yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I help, I help people on paleo and keto. And yeah. is, if you have any kind of reasonably nutritionally balanced diet, you can, you can do this. So exactly. I, I, I'm not saying that either. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Rodney, but you know what happened to me? When I developed the ability to pause and make different choices, Mm. I started to recognize that there was an authentic biological need most of the time. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't just craving chocolate out of some psychological emptiness or stress. Um, I often needed energy. I often was lacking some minerals or nutrients. And I started to experiment with what I could have instead. Mm. Eventually, I landed on a kale banana smoothie, usually a, a head of kale juice and a head of kale nut juice, mm. and um, you know a couple of bananas. And then I wouldn't get the same level of pleasure that I got from chocolate. So I wasn't getting high with the chocolate, but the craving went away entirely and I was content. It didn't bother me. Mm. And I, I think of that as correcting the biological error and pointing my survival drive back to where it was supposed to be pointed in the first place. And I think that's an inherent part of the recovery process. It's not, not just that you avoid the bags and boxes and containers or whatever it is that's dogging you, but you ask yourself, what does your body authentically need? Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you can just say, well, it's okay to be hungry sometimes. And you know, I can yeah. enjoy my hunger as a sign of mastery, but I find more often than not, not my body actually needs something. That's great. That's a great tip. And just as we wrap up, do you have any other sort of tips for us? I mean, um, <laughs> you might go back to the 
talking to your your pig or whatever, but uh, do you have a couple of tips for us just as we close well, here? The easiest way to get started is with a low bar. If you come up with one simple rule, mm. one simple rule, maybe it's I never go back for seconds. Maybe it's um, I always put my fork down between bites. Mm. Maybe it's I never go to bed with, without writing a hypothetical rule, hypothetical food plan for the next day. Whatever you think would make a difference and turn your ship around without being too burdensome. And when I ask people to take a breath and think about it, everybody knows what would be not so burdensome for them. Make one simple rule and then watch yourself try to break it. Listen to that. You don't have to call it a pig. You can call it a food monster or mm -hmm. your inner food enemy, whatever you want to call it. And listen to, for me, it's a pig. Listen to your pig try to get you to break it by squealing. <laughs> write, write down what it's saying and then figure out why what it's saying is wrong. So for example, if the pig says it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow, you might as well binge today. The truth is that by the principle of neuroplasticity, when we have a craving and we indulge it today, that craving will be stronger tomorrow because we're either always reinforcing or extinguishing those patterns. So it'll actually be harder to start tomorrow if you eat today, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Mm -hmm. So write down what your pig says, write down why it's wrong. Um, and slowly but surely you'll get the idea. There's a, there's a lot more to it. I've got some free things that'll help you. Um, but that's, that's what I would suggest. Great. I like that. So one simple rule. I mean, just as you say that, it just feels like uh, I can breathe a little bit. Like I, I think people like, you know, you've got the raw vegan tattoo on, and, and making these changes sometimes for some people is like, oh, that's just too much. But if you start with one simple thing, that's that's such a good point. And then watch yourself uh, try and break it, write that, write that down and uh, figure out why it's wrong. That's That's really good stuff. And I'm sure there's more to it than that. And um, you have something that you want to offer our listeners. Well, I want to give you a free copy of the book. If, if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red button, you can get a free copy in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. It also comes with a, um, if you do it that way, it comes with a set of food plan starter templates. So for every dietary philosophy, we came up with a sample set of rules. You need to take responsibility for modifying them for yourself. But whether you're you know, low carb or high carb or vegan or carnivorous or point counters or calorie counters. It doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. We showed you some sample rules that might work for you. And I recorded a whole bunch of full length coaching sessions because I know this sounds really weird in principle and the abstract. You think, why does Rodney have this psychologist time with a pig inside of him? I don't, I don't really understand. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in implementation, it's a very compassionate process, which brings people from, um, feeling powerless and confused and hopeless to feeling excited and powerful and enthusiastic. And so let neverbingeagain.com click the big red button. Excellent. And for people listening on iTunes or uh, where, wherever they happen to be listening to us, we'll have that in our show notes. We'll have a link to that in our show notes, plus, uh, plus more notes and some other links of the things that we have talked about. So Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Glenn. Like I said, is when I heard you on Adam's show, I thought this, I, I really want to have a conversation with him. And I actually shared the one simple rule principle with my wife, like right away. I think I came out of this office that I'm in right now and just said, listen to this. Doesn't this sound doable and practical and helpful? And well, but the reason that works is that the pig strategy to get you to fail is to set the bar too high. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So it, it thinks that when you're going to be good, you'll be very, very good. But when you're going to be bad, you're going to be horrid. So it'll say, well, if you're going to diet, you have to really diet. You know, let's mm-hmm. drop our calories in half and let's avoid absolutely all the junk and everything like that. But if you go to kindergarten before you go to college, then that's a bar that you can cross and you overcome the pigs constantly setting the bar too high for you. Yeah. And, and the other thing I want to reiterate that you said is just to focus on the rule then focus on the rule and what, and writing it down and doing those things rather than what the scale might be saying. Like th- that's, that's important to, to watch that, but you're focusing on something else rather and you than you can keep, way. you can keep a journal of non-scale victories also. They can mm-hmm. write down what happens to your digestion and your skin and your confidence and your mental well-being and your relationships with other people and your presence at work and all of the benefits that accrue when you take control of your impulses and emotions like that and stop the, um, you know, stop the food behavior around one simple rule. You're going to start to appreciate how much this can do for you. Good stuff. So yeah, again, it's uh, neverbingeagain.com. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. It was fun.